Hello, welcome to the new and improved truck spotting, complete with music. Ooh, a podcast about labor, activism, the economy, culture, crime and punishment, and any other butterflies that catch my attention. I'm your host, Aaron. My pronouns are he and him. Today, my topic is the role of organization. Organization is what we do as humans. There are those who are not really the organizing type, but humans live in society, and society is basically an organization of organizations, with ever smaller organizations within them, down to the handful of co-workers you sit with around the lunch table, or the buddies you play board games with, or a subcommittee you sit on. So when you hear someone talk about organizing, really it's just people being people. Of course, when you hear people like me say organizing and there's no modifier after it, it can be safe to assume I'm specifically talking about organizing workplaces. Now, again, organizing workplaces is perfectly normal. On one level, it really helps when everything is in its place, when that tool you need is right where you expect it to be. That makes it dependable, reliable. There's a relationship between itself and everything else around it that is predictable. On a fundamental level, that is what workers do when they organize. When the word solidarity is spoken, it means not that right there and it means not that right there and then you're standing next to someone in a cheek to jowl meeting. Unfortunately, there are places where that is exactly the case, and that's the only thing it means, and even though it may be organized according to the paperwork, really, it isn't. Organizing a workplace has a fundamental social component to it. There are leaders within the union itself, even at the workplace level. They should be elected by the members, and they should be elected because the members trust them to do, you know, leading things. This means that they know and are comfortable with each other on a level beyond I was assigned to work next to them. When you decide to take collective action, you need more of a base than that level of I tolerate their presence in exchange for a paycheck. The leaders elected by unions are fundamentally different than bosses because you generally don't get to vote on who's boss. I say general because there are outlier situations where this may actually happen. But if you have a say in who the boss is, if you get to elect the boss directly, and you can vote to replace that boss if things that you don't like, if they do things that you don't like, is that really a boss? That sort of organization, like an extension of a unionized workplace that encompasses every level of the operation, can be called a co-op. But to be a real worker co-op, there needs to be profit sharing as well. There are different types of co-ops as well as different levels of organizations that look like worker co-ops if you drop one or another trait. Now, what I'm talking about is specific to the United States, which has a very weak worker co-op tradition compared to many other countries. Because so many things can be confused as worker co-ops, I'll do a brief rundown of different things that look and sound like worker co-ops. Now, again, before I go any further, there is no universally agreed upon definition of a worker co-op. The first test that I'm going to propose is that every member is a worker and every worker is a member. How it is legally structured around that doesn't really matter. All members and only members meaning all workers and only workers, get to vote on leadership, and members can challenge policies. All members get an equal share in the profits. 
All members and only members have a voice and a vote in compensation. There is both a spirit and a practice of democracy. Everyone is there because they choose to be there and can leave freely. For the most part, this is a reflection of the, well, I'm probably going to bungle this. Uh, a lot of people might call it Rochdale. I, I think it's pronounced Rochdale, though. The Rochdale Principles. They were put out by the Society of Equitable Pioneers. It is a group that, well, pioneered co-ops as we understand them today. They operated a successful store where they sold their products. There were earlier attempts at things like self-sustaining co-op communities, but it turns out that you always need stuff from outside, and they didn't work that well. If you look up co-ops, which you should do because getting your information from one source is a bad idea, you'll see that there are different types of co-ops. These other co-ops are at a financial advantage to worker co-ops because often they are part of the establishment and pro properly constituted have all the usual access to capital. Here in the U.S., much of the country is supplied with electricity from electrical co-ops. These are definitely not worker co-ops. The customers are the members and you are told that you are a member based on where you live. Here's your address, here are the utilities, and congrats for avoiding the Duke Energy Bullet. Your electricity is supplied by a nice, friendly local co-op. Makes you feel all nice and warm and fuzzy. That co-op is a monopoly. I mean, it is what it is. If you are employed there and, you, and you're a member, it's because you happen to live within a service area. And although you and your co-workers may get to vote, depending on how it's structured, it is because you're of your address and not because of your job. Membership is not voluntary. It is compulsory, unless you have the ability to live off-grid. Another common type of co-op is a credit union. In fact, the financial industry is surprisingly full of co-ops. Some major insurance companies are mutual companies, meaning that, if the, meaning that the people who buy policies are members. State Farm and MetLife immediately come to mind. If the company makes too much money, Mutual companies are obliged to give a refund of premiums to their policyholders. You get to vote on the board based on your status as a policyholder. But the workers there, again, are not members unless they also own policies for the company. And, pra and in practice, other than that possible check for a bit of the premium you paid in, the only difference between a mutual company and a stock-owned company really is whether it is taxed as a non-profit or as a for-profit company. That warm and fuzzy feeling I mentioned earlier only goes so far in the financial world. There are also agricultural co-ops. These are interesting because a lot of times they go back to the Grange. Back in the days of the robber barons, the government basically gave the industrialists a blank check to do whatever the hell they wanted. The Grange was basically a revolt of farmers and ranchers out west to government-sanctioned industrialists doing whatever the hell they wanted. By coming together economically, socially, and politically, they were able to at least part partially subvert the will of the industrialists. They won concessions for things like railway access and standardized train fare, for example. The agricultural co-ops are particularly big in the, in, in the dairy industry today. For example, Land O'Lakes is a co-op. The members are the farmers and ranchers who supply the milk. Often, dairy co-ops will advertise themselves as farmer-owned on delivery trucks. I've seen them all over the country as an over-the-road driver. There are also other agricultural co-ops. 
many grain elevators were and some still are co-ops. And while the farmers and ranchers are the ones who produce the food, the co-op employees themselves again are usually not themselves members and able to vote directly just for being employees. In addition, farm consolidation means that most members who are employers who vote are, are employers themselves, making these co-ops more akin to sports leagues, at least in my opinion. There are also buyer co-ops. Many are agriculturally centered. You buy into the co-op and you get a certain amount of food. Some stores have some some have stores where it is like any other store, just with locally produced food. Others you buy into and they deliver a share of whatever they produced. These co-ops are my limited anecdotal experience. Better for me and often the families that supply the co-ops do it because they have a they have far more control and they bypass the food cartel that is currently crushing American farmers and ranchers. Honestly, I like this arrangement much more than the usual big food options, and I hate that there is such a thing as bad, as big food to mention. Of all the types of co-ops mentioned so far, they are by far more likely to operate similarly to worker co-ops. And then you have other structures that are like co-ops in spirit, but not necessarily in practice. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of employee stock-owned companies. These are usually not really worker co-ops because your votes are tied to the number of shares you own. Workers choose to participate in the share purchase program as part of the benefits package. There is a basic element of democracy, but while the idea is for everyone to purchase part of the company and have a say in it, the votes are unequal due to unequal share ownership. This kind of company is generally due to a retiring business owner, quote unquote, leaving it to the employees. It is also possible for a hybrid to exist, with employees owning part of the company and outside investors owning the balance. For example, if the, uh, for, if the, if the uh, uh, business owner who established the business had, uh, had uh, assumed debt for the business, then that would be a way to resolve that. Democracy is very rudimentary. It's limited to the normal voting on board members and stockholder initiatives of most stock issuing companies. Many people see employee stock ownership programs to be an answer for worker empowerment and organization, but it really does not represent the fundamental economic shift needed to dethrone the elites. That, I propose, is mostly through worker co-ops. There is, in my opinion, no coincidence that the U.S. is such a weak worker co-op tradition and such an alienated public and workforce. And there, I believe, a fundamental connection between the power of Wall Street and the state of co-ops in this country. It is, at, it is all part of our society and how we choose to organize ourselves. Worker co-ops predate unions. I'm not a historian, but my undergrad was in applied anthropology, and I can safely say that people are people, and in the fullness of time, every organization has been explored time after time by culture after culture. So I'm not going to pretend that this is something new or innovative. For our purposes here, however, the worker co-op specifically follows specific theoretical and philosophical rules that came from the labor movement of the Industrial Revolution. I mentioned the Rochdale principles earlier. Although they date back to 1844, there is a group today called the International Cooperative Alliance that, has, that reformulates the principles from time to time. 
This is because, well, you learn new things over the course of a century and a half of experience. The principles aren't all that different in spirit. They're voluntary and open membership without demographic discrimination and membership gives motivations and rewards. Democratic member control. Member economic participation. This also calls for part of the surpluses uh, that are set aside for the group as a whole. It also calls for members to contribute to the group, making capital contributions that can't be withdrawn entirely because it becomes part of what the group as a whole controls. I have a quibble with that and I'll delve into that later. Autonomy and independence. If they raise money from outside, they have to maintain control themselves. This is very limiting, but I agree very strongly with that. I'll delve into the ramifications in a bit. Education, training, and information. Co-ops are expected to help members skill up to do what needs to be done, and also to be a mouthpiece for the workers. I mean, after all, this is that's the basic uh, idea for the for the co-op. And then cooperation among cooperatives, meaning the different co-ops find ways to work together. If you had the opportunity to choose a co-op or a privately or publicly held company as either a client or a vendor, you go with the co-op. This is where the intent becomes to subvert the elites. And then concern for community. Uh, you, uh, in the cooperative community, sustain sustainable development is important. As I said, this is not the original version of the Rochdale Principles. I did some brief looking around and everything dated to 1937 when the ICA officially adopted the Rochdale Principles. But I was curious to see how much things have changed. I hit a bit of a wall there. Everything pointed to adoption of the original principles by the ICA. And so then without access to JSTOR, I'm just going to assume that they are the original 1844 version. So here are the original principles as I could find them. Open membership, democratic control, one man, one vote. And I have to say, I have seen pictures of this society and man is definitely the operative word there. The open membership is not like we uh, like what's uh, promoted today. Distribution of surplus in proportion to trade. Payment of limited interest on capital. Political and religious neutrality. Cash trading, i.e. no credit. And promotion of education. So while there have been some big changes, the spirit remains intact. The worker co-op concept was pretty moribund in the U.S. for a few years and was reconstituted in the 1960s. Today's understanding of worker co-ops in the U.S. dates back to that revival about 60 years ago. As I mentioned before, there are a couple of things above that I would like to expand and expound on. A big one is financing or capitalization. Yeah, I know those are some nasty words in the lefty world, but we have to live in the real world, right? This is about revolutionary direct action, and that's going to get nasty. It involves nasty words in this case. There may be newer numbers available now, but the last I heard, 53% of households couldn't come up with $500 for an emergency like a car repair. So then, how do you con so so then how do you uh, contribute to starting a co-op? Well, the original pioneers raised one sterling pound each, which translates in today's money into 
$147. That means they started their store with about $4,117 in total capital. Now, I know that sounds really slim, but that is possible to do today, especially considering their store was described as sparse before they expanded inventory a few months later. So perhaps this could be on par with a salvage store. If it was done as, say, an eBay store operated out of members' homes, that could be realistic even today for 28 people to come up with that amount of money. I'm not suggesting that everyone rush out and do that, but I'm trying to find comparisons of what they accomplished. I think there's, I think that there are parallels. Now, that kind of operation is fine if you're looking to make a few bucks for yourself and your friends and saying that you have your co-op. It, it, it supports the members and is a lean, mean retailing machine, and that's all that's needed for success. I think that's a, that's a valid statement. One little victory here, another little victory there, it all adds up, right? And I think that is perfectly okay. I support the people doing that. In fact, I invite you to support them too. Most businesses are small in scope, no matter how they're constituted. You can go on any go go, and you'll find a handful of co-ops there, and you could send them 10 or $20 to get them started. Or you could subscribe to my Patreon. I keep an eye out for opportunities to pass money along. Or you could do both. I'm not picky. If a co-op can legitimately set up, get set up with $40,000 in funding, it only takes 2,000 people sending them $20 each in one month to hit that goal. But there are a lot of businesses that need a lot more money to get started. For example, let's say you're like me, a garment worker, making bolts of cloth into clothing through arcane means. I don't know how. I just cut the stuff. I'm not the one who makes them into clothes. But all of our cloth comes from overseas. What if I wanted apparel fabric from the U.S.? And I've looked around. I haven't seen any any reasonable options, despite how we grow the cotton that is sent overseas to make into cloth, which is then sold in Joann's across the country to make for us to make into clothes and stuff. So if I want to use US-made apparel uh, cotton fabric, I need to set up a factory that can make cotton apparel cloth. I know a couple of places claim to, s to sell made in the USA cotton apparel cloth, but I haven't seen the actual manufacturers any, anywhere. If you know a source of actual legitimately made in the U.S. cotton apparel cloth, then uh, DM me with the information so I can check it out. So you need a truck of cotton bales and the means to turn it into, say, licensed Cleveland Browns perfect season commemorative cloth. That requires a building, utilities, <clears throat> money to pay the workers there, insurance, and equipment plus a license for the Cleveland Browns. The equipment really is what I looked at. It appeared that I could get the stuff for everything for the entire process of taking it from bales of cotton to finished apparel cloth for about $200,000. Now I say that without any knowledge of what the capacity of any of, any of the equipment this is a thought exercise only. It isn't a business proposal. But let's say I have a pole barn type building to put on my own land. The building costs $250,000 including land, utility hookups, and finishing. Because I live in southwest Missouri and land is pretty dirt cheap compared to where most people live. 
So for $450,000 plus the other expenses, and we'll call that $600,000 total, and we have a factory. Okay, a quote-unquote factory with who knows what kind of output. This is being structured as a co-op because in my imaginary scenario, I have actually found five other people in my area very excited about working in the leftist wet dream of a workers' co-op. So we have four machines and six workers, and each of us contributes, and I go back to the original, $147, if we're following the uh, pattern of the, of the uh, Pioneer group. So that leaves us only $599,118 left to raise. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why do you deserve that kind of facility? But the point is, but the point isn't that I'm that I deserve it because I don't. And you aren't going to see this on Indiegogo or GoFundMe, at least not for me. But feel free to use a specific idea if you want, though. I see an opportunity in the market. Now, there's always the odd and angel investor who's just looking to do some good, not looking for a return. Someone who's like, "Hey, I like you, and I want to do some good thing I can put on my website," and who hands me the balance but you can't count on finding that. Now, we throw around the word capital quite a bit in our society, but capitalism is different from capital, and I want to make the, that distinction here. Capitalism is a system whereby debt instruments and other securities are sold on a secondary market. For example, that's why when you get a mortgage, almost certainly the money the company you send your money to to pay it off is different than the one who paid up front for the house the one you send the money to purchased your money, your mortgage from the one who paid up front for the house. Wall Street, for example, isn't really about financing companies by issuing stock, but issuing, but rather trading shares. The issuing stock just gives them the shares that they can, that they can uh, trade later on. NASDAQ in Chicago, the New York Stock Exchange, these are, this, these are major secondary markets. There are also numerous dark pools where very wealthy people and funds also trade outside of SEC oversight. In fact, when I was in the insurance industry, the dark pools had more activity than the open markets. So basically, the markets responded more to what was happening in the shadows than what was happening in public earnings calls. The dark pools in the regulated open markets are where capitalism actually happens. Lots of people are conditioned to associate free enterprise, which is the ability to open and operate your own business, with capitalism. And I want to be clear that free enterprise is a good thing. Competition is a good thing. Monopolies are bad. Duopolies are bad. But free enterprise can exist outside of this, cap outside of this system of capitalism. Now, in my opinion, debt is bad especially debt that accrues interest. I personally, yeah, I have debt. I incurred debt to start our sewing business. I have a landlord, a nice guy that I rent my house from. I have to pay him. I will never own this house. Debt is built into our system because that is what currently funds retirement in our country. Pensions, 401ks, IRAs, they're all built on debt. When you're paying on debt, you are overpaying for what you are buying. That's the whole point. You dig yourself a hole and it's a trap. It's a trap for businesses too. Five years after the Great Recession, we were still losing smaller businesses to that recession.
because they borrowed to keep operating and eventually the interest crushed them. And I contend that one of the biggest ways to strike back at the elites is to simply not take on debt, even for a co-op trying to start up. Not having a landlord. And that is why I think it becomes very expensive for a co-op to properly start up. But what that does is it bulletproofs the co-op against future rent increases. One of the tactics used to force unwanted businesses out for redevelopment is either massive rent increases or simple non-renewal of leases. If you're going to challenge the powers of B, you need to make sure you don't make yourself an easy target. They will hike up the rates and laugh all the way to the bank as crowdfunding just shifts more money to them. And there is no doubt that for, that, for example, if as I suggested in my first co-op episode, we were to crowdfund real estate for co-ops on Manhattan, it would hand money over to the elites. But I would rather buy that relative freedom up front than depend on a rental system because it removes that particular income stream. And then the co-op can use the income that would have been paid to the elites to help employees or to help or or, or to expand or ideally help fund the, st the startup of other co-ops. And this really is the exciting thing. We have these wonderful platforms out there that let us do precisely this. <clears throat> According to some articles out there on the internet, there are supposedly over a thousand crowdfunding services out there. And I found worker co-ops or worker co-op-like projects on places like Indiegogo. I have been searching for a crowdfunding website devoted to co-ops, but so far haven't found one that matches what I'm looking for. There are co-op related websites, such as the local community, which has very targeted community-based crowdfunding and co-op exchange, an app that allows micro-investment at co-ops for a return on investment, which is kind of the opposite of my proposal, sad to say. But there are many different platforms suitable based on what you're trying to start. If you're interested in sending 10 to 20 bucks to a co-op, there is a cooperative there's the Cooperative Fund Crowdfunding Monitor, ran by the Co-op Platform 6, and I'm going to drop the link in the notes for the episode. These are projects from around the world, and they are not all worker co-ops as we define them, but there does not seem to be a central clearinghouse of this information. Unfortunately, I had a deadline for this episode and ran out of time before I could record it. If I find a better source of information on crowdfunding worker co-ops in a way that doesn't involve debt or the other strings of typical investment, I'll keep you updated on that on both my Twitter and on my Patreon, as well as carving out a mention on future episodes right here. Now, obviously, co-ops are a particular passion of mine, and I'll be returning to this topic again in the future because I think that an increasing web of worker co-ops working together can take us beyond the current regime of unions having to constantly fight battles to keep workers safe and secure, both physically and financially, from the elites that seek ever higher returns at our expense. Those returns come from us, our dollars, and our labor, and we have the numbers on our side to create something better for all of us. And those of us with the resources to put a few bucks in each month should do that as a matter of solidarity. And those of us who have already obtained the means of our production should be helping those who do who have not. If we don't, 
If we allow end-stage capitalism to continue to dominate us here in the U.S., then it will just get worse and worse for us and for the rest of the world. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support me, then tell someone who might appreciate my message. You can follow me at Truck Spotting Podcast on Twitter, and I have a link to my Patreon below. That mon- I use that money to pay bills, to donate to strike funds, and to help co-ops start up. This podcast is free and ad-free, unless I have guests with projects to plug, in which case, yeah, you'll have to listen to their plugs. And thank you for listening again, and I hope you have a wonderful week.